0: This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org.
1: So welcome. Welcome, everyone. All of those who are Zooming in from who knows where, far-flung places, some of you, to all of those uh, huddled (laughs) huddled folks in the side yard at Austin Zen Center. You look so cold. (laughs) It's a perfect day for an outdoor sit, isn't it? You can always add another blanket. So, uh, for those of you who may not know, we are holding our first online and in person one day retreat today at the Austin Zen Center. So, what that means, I think there are about maybe 10, 12 people who are zooming in online, and about seven, eight people who are uh, sitting in person in the side yard. And then all of the people who are here uh, for the Saturday morning program. So welcome to all of you. As you may know, the, uh, the topic of this practice period, which we just opened this past Wednesday, we had our opening ceremony in the Zendo and online, and uh, the topic of the practice period is uh, that of refuge or um, going for refuge, finding refuge, taking refuge, being refuge. The um, When you hear the word refuge, usually what comes up is some um Some sense of refuge from something, right? Usually refuge implies some kind of um, protection from danger, maybe. some protection from external events or um, um, things that are going to unsettle or disrupt or pull it down or submerge, right? All of these things we're looking when you think about refuge, it's uh, sometimes thinking about escaping something. That's the conventional sense of refuge. And maybe there's a sense in which that's also contained in the Buddhist sense of refuge or going for refuge, which usually means going for refuge in the triple treasure in the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. So and maybe ultimately refuge in the Buddhist sense is the refuge of um, refuge from samsara. Wouldn't that be nice? From the whole shebang, samsara, this life of of uh, unending uh, opportunities for suffering. How do we escape it? So, uh, as I mentioned in the class that we started on Thursday, I I wanted to get a little bit, uh, go a little bit into this question of, um, for us personally, where have we sought refuge in the past? And did it work? Did you find it? I'm reminded of the song Looking for Love in All the Wrong Places. <laughs> when we go for refuge, uh, oftentimes it's this the impulse to seek refuge, um, to alleviate our suffering. We may end up f- going in areas, to, searching for areas to give us some respite, some soothing, some calm from the uh, seemingly incessant storm of samsara. I don't know about you, but I've certainly looked in all kinds of places for that refuge. Sometimes people look for it in is some sort of uh, escapist tendencies like, I don't know, television, food, sex, intoxicants. And maybe that, that might be uh, appealing for a short time to go for refuge in some of these means maybe it's um at the at the class we we started off by talking about um i asked everyone to identify what their buddhist personality type is meaning uh are you a greed type are you a hate type or are you a delusion type because this being really open to Wow, where do I, where have I gone? What have I done to search for alleviation of suffering, of my suffering, and maybe the suffering of others as well? Right. And if I'm, a, if you're a greed type, it's oftentimes with accumulation of things. It could be material things, physical things, or uh, experiences beliefs maybe. If you're an aversion type then refuge might look like getting rid of things, paring down, cutting people out of your life, turning away. And maybe if you're a delusion type refuge uh, might just be something you think about and get lost in the thought about refuge. Or maybe uh, refuge doesn't even come up and it's uh, uh, confusion disorientation, right? Now, of course, all of us have all three of these uh, personality types, the poisons, the three poisons somewhere in us. So one of the things that happens when we search for refuge in the wrong places is that we come up against a wall and then we feel like Oh, this isn't, maybe this isn't working. Oftentimes in these practice periods, we uh, we invite people to give what we call a, a way-seeking mind talk, which is basically a talk, uh, you know, a short uh, reflection on the question, how did you come to practice? What brought you to practice? And usually, not all the time, but usually uh, the tale of what brought me to practice includes some, something that we are turning away from or letting go of or maybe even running away from, right? In this way-seeking mind that we all have, we are all looking for some way of untangling this tangle called samsara. So maybe what brings us to practice originally is this uh, seeking for alleviation from suffering. Maybe we're just looking for you know, uh, some calm in our life. Maybe we have an anger issue or somebody's told us that we have an anger issue and we're like, hmm, yeah, I guess I can see that. How do I find some calm, right? Maybe the reasons for coming to practice start off as these kind of psychological practical, uh, you know, reasons. And the idea of refuge, I think for us, uh, largely in the West, uh, we grew up kind of skeptical, maybe rationalist, uh, heavy in the thinking department, maybe less in the faith department. Maybe that's true for you, maybe not. But the idea of um, giving over or letting go of control uh, is kind of foreign to us. Maybe I'm just speaking for myself. There's a uh, a great story. Uh, I heard Bruce speaking a little bit about um, this afternoon. There will be a stepping down ceremony for Sojin Mel Weitzman at the Berkeley Zen Center. Um, there's a Mel story. I think I, I told this story to um, Tim and Bruce yesterday. I, I read it on the website, uh, the Berkeley Zen Center website, and I'm going to read it to you as well. I think this is exactly kind of when I read it. I was like, yeah, this is what we're talking about. So, long ago, when Berkeley Zen Center was still on Dwight Way, this must have been in the uh, early 70s, a policeman, seeing the lights on, I imagine this is early in the morning, seeing the lights on, knocked at the front door in the early hours of morning. The officer was checking that everything was okay. Sojin answered politely that... Some people were meditating up in the attic. The policeman said, you know, we used to look for dope in the walls of this place. Then he asked, wouldn't you get there faster if you smoked grass? Sojin replied, we're not going anywhere. Wouldn't you get there faster if you smoked grass? We're not going anywhere. So this brings us to uh, the title of today's retreat, which um, is finding our place amidst what is. Not looking for another place to be, but finding our place within now, within this. which I don't know about you, but when I first heard that kind of talk, it didn't make any sense. So what is this not going anywhere? When we sit zazen, that's exactly what we're doing. We're not going anywhere. We're actually doing the opposite of going somewhere. We're not taking a little trip, Uh, We're not flying off uh, into thought. Well, ideally, we're not flying off into thought. Although, as all of you know, (laughs) we do fly off into thought, like repeatedly. So how do we come back to this moment? This is what we study when we sit zazen. When we sit zazen, we're not just studying how to do that, but, but the feeling of what that's like to stay still, to stay present, and to open up to what is. What is this in this moment? There's a sense in this of um, surrendering, which I think makes many of us feel very uncomfortable, understandably so, right? We don't necessarily, Start off our practice with a lot of trust, certainly with a not without a lot of faith. Um, so this idea of surrendering or giving over, when uh, when you first hear about this concept of taking refuge or going for refuge in the triple treasure, it's actually a fundamental reorientation to our kind of usual way of operating. Sometimes uh, Linda Ruth Cutts uh, will be coming next uh, week from today to give a Dharma talk at AZC. And something that she often talked about, I don't know where she got it from. It could have been Suzuki Roshi, it could have been Katagiri. But she spoke often of this plunging, <laughs> plunging into inexhaustible vow. this plunging or this leaping another way is uh, another word is leaping. So it's not like, you know, sticking your toe in, although that's kind of how it feels right. Sticking our toe in, testing the water. Is this going to be okay? Am I going to be okay? Right. This taking refuge is actually asking or uh, offering something other than um, our usual way of living a life based on um, our karma. How do we do that? How do we not live a life according to our karma? If we just go along uh, with our impulses, unchecked, without really uh, looking deeply, we may look back on our life and realize, oh, I lived my life according to my karma. If we decide, okay, I'm not gonna do that. And we enter into some like, I don't know, multi-stage plan to like, okay, well, I'm not gonna do that. Instead, I'm going to decide to do this other thing. um, That's tricky too. Because ultimately, we're still living according to me and what I think and what I want and what I discern and decide, right? So this taking refuge in the triple treasure, Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, there's something about this taking refuge that is, um, it's a practice, Right? We practice. There's a practice of taking refuge, of going for refuge. So we try it out. We try out what it means to plunge into inexhaustible vow. What vow? Is it a vow that we read about? Is it a vow that's offered to us, that somebody gives us? I think that the vow is something that is discovered. Again, it's something that's not, uh, uh, that's discerned as a way of, uh, that that comes out of opening up to what is repeatedly, and ideally opening up to what is without, Trying to control. This is what this plunging into inexhaustible vow looks like. So, how do we go from living our life based on our karma to living our life based on Dharma? What is this Buddha? What is this Dharma? And what is this Sangha? At some point, Uh, The way we get there is that we have some suspicion, some suspicion that our usual way of living a life based on me is not working out so well. That little inkling, hmm, there might be something else. What might that be? This idea of trust or faith, Shraddha, can be pretty hard for us. Maybe I'm just speaking for myself. Having been uh, probably trained as a skeptic, I think. Uh, There's a phrase that I hear often in Soto Zen. Uh, Maybe some of you have heard it. Throwing yourself into the house of Buddha. Just fling, this flinging. (laughs) So these plunging and... Uh, leaping and throwing, <laughs> these, these are very physical uh, uh, acts of um, kind of jumping off the 100-foot pole, which was I think mentioned last week, maybe it was Mary who mentioned that. The three jewels of Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, Kadagiri Roshi talks about them as uh he speaks of Buddha as the universe, that's Buddha. In our precept group, we've been talking about uh, uh, this topic, like what does Buddha mean to you? Buddha is the awakened one, the thus come one, the Tathagata, you could say Shakyamuni Buddha, Siddhartha Gautama, the historic Buddha. Katagiri introduces this idea of the Buddha as the entire universe. And then the Dharma, which is often the teachings or the law, the teachings of the Buddha, the Dharma is, uh, in Katagiri's words, the truth of the universe, or the teaching that comes out of the universe that is Buddha. And then the Sangha, you could say, you know, traditionally speaking, the Sangha is the, uh, the four types, the four groups of um, m- ma- uh, monks, nuns, lay women, and lay men. All right, these four groups is the Sangha, traditionally. Uh, you could expand Sangha to mean all sentient beings. It's a pretty big uh, spectrum there. Or you can think of Sangha as those people who are practicing aligning themselves with the truth of the universe and the unfolding of the universe itself. There's a teacher who lives in Mill Valley, her name is uh, Wendy Palmer, and she's an Aikido well, she was an Aikido master for mm, probably her almost her whole adult life. She's not teaching Aikido anymore. I think she's teaching uh, embodied practices now, somatic practice. But she has this, um, this description of, um, you know, in Aikido, maybe some of you know this, there's this sense of uh, your inner stability, your, maybe your inner ground that you move from, right, your center. Maybe your north star, your rudder, right? This thing that you have usually kept around your hara, right? And this is where you move from. This is the source of your entire life energy. And she talks about... Um, there being other beings that contribute to the strength of your own source. And she says, this is your posse. This is kind of what I think of Sangha, right? Your spiritual friends, which may be different from usual friends, right? Your posse, when when Wendy Palmer uh, invites us to look at, like, you know, get to know your posse who is, you get to decide who's in your posse, right? And whoever's in your posse, they don't even need to be uh, real. They don't need to be alive. They don't need to be present with you right here as a physical manifestation. And Katagiri talks about Sangha in this way as well. He says, even if we think of this person, could be anything, for just a moment, the presence of this person really helps our life. So when we move from that center, we have this whole universe, this whole being uh, contained right here within us. We just recently had a uh, ceremony in which uh, four people received precepts, which is a foundation for Buddha, Dharma and Sangha, an ethical way of living. Not commandments, maybe something in between like guidelines and uh, rules. But beyond that, the precepts being mm, a description of an enlightened being's actions, how they live in the world. In that ceremony, uh, there's a line that in faith that we are Buddha, we are Buddha, we enter Buddha's way. There's also a description of, uh, in the ceremony, the ordinands are considered uh, children of the Buddha becoming a child of Buddha. And I wanna read a description of this from Karagiri Roshi. This is from his book, the book Returning from Silence. He says, to be a disciple or a son or daughter of the Buddha means we are people who accept the lives of all sentient beings as the contents of our life. The universe is vast. The universe completely accepts us, accepts our lives as the contents of the universe. The universe never separates its life from our life, the tree's life the bird's life, our life, winter's life, spring's life are all accepted as the content or quality of the universe. This is why the universe is Buddha. We are children of Buddha. If we realize this, then we can put this spirit into practice, which is kind of interesting. If we realize this, we can put this spirit into practice. Oftentimes we think of um, you know, we practice, practice, practice in order to gain realization. <laughs> but here Katagiri is flipping it. If we realize this, then we can put this into practice. And uh, and so this sense of this linear progression is turned upside down, which is a common occurrence in Zen, and the practice of Zen, I would think. As a practice, what this means is that we don't need to understand it. Oftentimes, uh, at least for myself, speaking for myself, I've been limited by needing to understand before I can try something. No, no, I can't try that yet. I need to understand it first. And only when I understand it can I step forward, right? This is the antithesis of this leaping, this plunging, this flinging or throwing ourselves, right? So when I say you don't need to understand it, it means not, having a, not needing to rely on a conceptual framework or conceptual understanding. Not to say that we don't occupy conceptual frameworks throughout our lives. We're always kind of going from one conceptual framework to another, but we don't need to uh, grasp the meaning in order to put our bodies into it. We experience this oftentimes through physical practices like bowing, or chanting. I know when I first came to a Zen center, I had had the practice of being uh, a, an Aikido practitioner. And in Aikido, I'm just like looking back, started practicing Aikido in my late teens, 17, 17 18 years old. And, um, you know, there were some forms that you learned as part of learning Aikido. Uh, That's one of the first places I ever bowed, actually, you know, is paying uh, reverence, homage to the founder of Aikido. And I remember doing that, stepping onto the tatami that we practiced on and doing a bow, giving a bow as part of a form. And maybe from, uh, for myself, being who I was at 17, that's the best I could do in terms of like, I could follow this form, right? If you had put me into a Zen center at that time and said, bow, I don't know if I would do it. (laughs) Um, So when I first came to San Francisco Zen center and went into the Buddha hall and was trying to learn these forms, um, you know, I was definitely in the camp of, I need to understand this before I do it. So uh, the first full moon ceremony I ever went to, chanting along, felt very awkward. It's like I'm chant, I'm saying this aloud. Like, do I believe it? <laughs> Is it okay that I'm? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe I'll mumble it, and it, then I can like look like I'm going, I'm following along, but I don't really, I'm not really saying something, right? Because I don't yet understand it, and somehow I shouldn't say it if I don't understand it because that would be maybe dishonest maybe that's what was going through my mind so this is a practice when Dogen Zenji says uh, dropping off body and mind who understands that in an intellectual way Dropping off, but what, what does that mean? <laughs> uh, I don't know about you, but this—that uh, question, what does this mean? Right—is a you know, pretty foundational question in my life. It's a good question to have, um, but if or when I've used that question as a uh, as a holding back. Um, it's not so helpful. When I use the question, what does this mean in a, in a moving forward as opposed to moving back way, uh, it has a completely different feeling, right? What does this mean as a question, as a, curious, a curiosity? Very, very different, right? From a question, what does this mean? Hmm, you know, the holding back, And then there's no, uh, there's not necessarily any assurances, right? It's not like, oh, when you take refuge in Buddha, Dharma and Sangha, that means that your problems will go away. It means that your suffering will cease. Um, does it, does it mean that it ceases? In some ways, maybe others, we don't know. This is a big question. And so we put ourselves in it over and over again. Again, this is the finding ourselves. What is this? Right where I am, not tomorrow, not when I was a child, but right now. Finding my place within what is. A few weeks ago, I think, um, somebody brought up the, like one of my favorite koans, case 37 of the Book of Serenity. Um, I wanted to read that case to you. Shan asked Yangshan, if someone suddenly said, all sentient beings just have active consciousness, boundless and unclear, uh, also sometimes translated as karmic consciousness, all sentient beings just have karmic consciousness, boundless and unclear with no fundamental to rely on, how would you prove it in experience? let me pause and just say, this no fundamental to rely on, when we go for refuge, when we plunge into this inexhaustible vow, when we uh, enter into the Buddha hall and begin chanting or bowing, right? There's no guarantees. This no fundamental to rely on is very important. Yangshan said, so this is his, his trying to prove it in experience. Yangshan said, if a monk comes, I call him. Hey, you. If the monk turns his, se- his head, I'll say, what is it? If he hesitates, I say, not only is their active consciousness boundless and unclear, they have no fundamental to rely on. And Shan says, good. He accepts his understanding. I remember one of my first, uh, actually my very first, my very first Shuso ceremony, which is a ceremony that takes place when somebody who's taken on the position of head monk in a practice period, starts to um, step into the role of being, of um, teaching others. So a Shuso will um, start to give talks, start to meet with other students, usually in an informal capacity. The Shuso also uh, is the one who takes out the trash, cleans the toilets, turns the compost, basically does all the dirty work that nobody wants to do. That's the Shuso's responsibility. So I was at my first Shuso ceremony and it was in San Francisco's Zen Center in the Buddha hall. If I remember correctly, it was Judy Gilbert who had been Richard Baker's Anja back in the day and Galen Godwin at this Shuso ceremony where everybody asks the Shuso a question and the Shuso, uh, has no idea what's being asked of them (laughs) until it's asked, and then they have to say something. Galen Godwin um, asked Judy Gilbert when she was Chousseau, she said, uh, Chousseau, help me. I'm at the edge of a cliff and now I'm falling. I'm falling. And Judy Gilbert said, here, take my hands. And Galen said, your hands are slippery. I'm slipping. (laughs) I'm falling. And Judy said, grab onto this branch. (laughs) And Galen said, the branch is broken. (laughs) It was very dramatic. And I remember uh, this stuck with me, this story, this uh, exchange that happened in this Chusot ceremony. And it was a lesson, it was a teaching right there. There's no fundamental to rely on. So what is this taking refuge, going for refuge in Buddha, Dharma and Sangha? Is it a promise? Is there a refuge there? Is refuge really a protection? Does it protect us? Pema Chodron uh, has this great description when asked about the topic of refuge. I love Pema Chodron. She says, in every human life, you are born and you are born alone. You go through that birth canal alone and then you pop out alone. Unless you're a twin. She didn't say that. And then a whole process begins. And when you die, you die alone. No one goes with you. The journey that you make, no matter what your belief about that journey, is made alone. The fundamental idea of taking refuge is that between birth and death, we are alone. Therefore, taking refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, does not mean finding consolation in them, as a child might find consolation in mommy and daddy. Rather, it's a basic expression of your aspiration to leap out of the nest. There's that leaping again. (laughs) To leap out of the nest, whether you feel ready for it or not, to go through your puberty rites, and be an adult with no hand to hold. So, this idea of refuge, finding refuge. If we think that finding refuge looks like um, being consoled by Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, Ultimately, that will fail us. And we see this in Zen's uh, the story of uh, Sun face Buddha, Moon face Buddha. Right. This very mind is Buddha. How do we reconcile that with when this very mind is freaking out? When this very mind is in a panic? when this very mind can't find a fundamental ground to rely on. It's interesting, I oftentimes think of practice as um, giving us a choice, opening up the possibility of choice, right? So when we sit quietly and we make a practice of it, we start to notice things. We start to notice our own habit energy. We might even find some insight from uh, sitting quietly, allowing the myriad things to come forth and express themselves without trying to control them. Oh, it's so hard, though. It's so hard to not try and control them. But my feeling of practice, uh, I think, was that this sitting quietly opens up the possibility of choosing where when we live our life based on our karma, that possibility is uh, very, very slim. And when we turn our life instead from living it based on uh, a version of me and mine to um, the whole universe, Buddha. There's something about that turning from living a life based on karma to living a life based on dharma. There's no guarantees. There are no guarantees. This feeling of choice is there, opening up some choice that maybe didn't, you know, you couldn't even see it before. It's like having the ability to pivot when you realize you're going down the wrong path, right? Having the ability to pivot is kind of like physically, if you think of pivoting, it requires some ground (laughs) to stand on (laughs) that you pivot from, right? Something that's there that's solid that you can lean on to then turn, right? However, the wisdom in this, uh, this chusseau back and forth between Galen and Judy, right? No, I can't grab onto your hand. I can't grab onto the branch. I'm falling. Taking away anything that we feel like we can grab onto is such a hard practice and only like if we, if we live our life in practice thinking, oh yeah, I can rely on this. I can rely on that. I can rely on this Buddha, Dharma and Sangha. How is trust going to be built? How do you build trust other than by experimenting? Let me see what works. And what works today may not work tomorrow. So, all of our ways of trying to grab onto, trying to find safety. um, What happens when we can't find safety? What happens when we uh, find ourselves? at the end of our lives, whether it's when we're young, middle-aged, or elderly. What ground is there to stand on? So how do we find out how to live a life that has no fundamental ground to rely on, other than by Finding our place right in the midst of everything without relying on anything. Again and again, just turning to what is this in a curious way. Not in a controlling way, not in a suspicious way. And yet, if that's what we find, that's what we have to work with. So as we go forward in this practice period, as Bruce mentioned, we have invited a number of uh, Dharma teachers to talk about refuge. So I hope that you are all able to uh, hear the Dharma spoken, to reflect back on your own source of refuge. What works and what doesn't? What do you look for nourishment in? And do you find it? And together uh, to explore the triple treasure and what's meant by Buddha, what's meant by Dharma and who's the Sangha without any guarantees, we embark on this path with all beings. Thank you very much. If uh, if there are any questions or comments, we can have a few minutes of those before uh, returning to our retreat. Insights? Yes, Maureen.
2: Oh hey hey Marco. Hey. So, <laughs> I have a question for you as a fellow philosopher person, but <laughs> very heady, right? Trapped in my head. <laughs> um, <laughs> of course I thought of Kierkegaard, you know, like the leap, right? Leap of faith, mm-hmm. but anyway, mm-hmm. um back to this. I have a question for you and it's this. So, you said um that you know there is no fundamental, right? And so um Eh. and and it makes me think like there's no self right and so is it that there's no fundamental in the sense of there's nothing we can control like that's about us Mm. um and so here's my question and is there like a kind of fundamental beyond our ability to control that is like the big you know dharma right and that's that is the fundamental, but it's not a fundamental. We can calculate or control or predict or, so that's my question. Does that make sense even? It
1: totally makes sense, Maureen. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yes. Yeah. This is, it's, is it that there's no fundamental? I mean, we, we have these words that we use. So when we, anytime we use language, we automatically fall into um, a way of dualistic, like it's very dualistic. Right, so when we say that there is a fundamental, then it brings up the possibility there's no fundamental, right? But I think that what you're saying is that it's not that there is nothing. It's just that we can't. We human beings are not. We can't rely on it. We can't control it, right? The you know I'm ref- uh, thinking of the koan like. You know, how do you, what do you do when the 10,000 things all come at once? What do you do? Well, I can tell you what I try to do. (laughs) I try to control them. (laughs) I'm like, no, no, you stay over there. You do this. You have to be this way. And, you know, then I'm going to feel safe. Right? That's what I do. That's why it's a practice. That's why I'm practicing. Because when the 10,000 things all come at once, which I say will say, this is what happens at the beginning of a practice period, <laughs> when the 10,000 things all come at once, don't try to control them. That's the, that's the answer to that koan. So it's not that there isn't, uh, a reality that's, uh, in it includes everything, right? It's just that when we talk about that reality, we automatically separate from it. Thank you very much for that question. That was really lovely. Anyone else? Yes, Sherry. Um, so I just had an insight um, when I first started practicing a long time ago. Uh, I could never sit when I was having difficulty. It just, uh, I, it was very difficult. If there was something bad going on in my life, I couldn't sit. And I think I realized now I just didn't know how to take refuge. Because
3: now if I'm having difficulty, I can sit. And uh, so I I
1: just thought that was a little light turned on. (laughs) Beautiful, Sherry. That is beautiful. Thank you for that. I think that's a a beautiful description. I think think all of us have been in that position before where maybe, um, you know, the schedule says, okay, go to Zazen now. We've said we wanted to go to Zazen and now it's time to go to Zazen. And like, uh, there's something there that's like, no, (laughs) I don't want to do that. I don't want to sit down and be with my discomfort. Right? Yeah. That's why this practice, you don't need to understand it. It's like, you know, there's a sense in which you know, taking refuge in Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, right? But then there's also, throughout it, there's taking refuge in our self, right? When the Buddha said, be a lamp unto yourself, what does that mean? Sometimes it feels like we can't stand to be in this skin bag of called self, right? And so we, we go back and forth, we get closer to it, and then it's, ah, like, oh, no, 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 no. You know, this is our, our, um, our play with zazen, right? Zazen is always available. There's no need to have a zendo, there's no need to have a cushion, you don't need to have a temple. Zazen is available everywhere and anywhere. But how do we, uh, you know, it's the question of, how do we, do we turn towards it? Or do we turn away from it? And maybe, you know, again, it's uh, if we turn away from zazen, it may be because we don't yet trust that it's a refuge. So we try it out. You know, be a lamp unto yourself means experiment. Be honest with your experimenting Thank you for that. Um, Mary, did you, I saw you had a, uh, your, your box lit up.
3: <laughs> yeah, I was just, um, I was thinking about this plunging in issue is, is have, taking this risk of living by vow, which is really just aligning your behavior, your action with principles and seeing what happens. <laughs> You know, and so vow is a verb. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's this, and I think we the doing and discovery part of it was really hard for me to trust Mm -hmm. that in doing it will reveal itself, and this and the surrendering to to the activity as being the way of. The way of turning towards the way of being where I am,
1: you know. Yeah. Uh, and then, what happens if you don't do that? Or like, what gets in the way of doing that? Is thinking that things should be another way. Right. Yeah. Right.
3: Thinking that I have the answers as well. <laughs> well
1: somebody has the answers. Yeah, maybe I don't, but I can like, you know, read about it in a book or somebody will tell me. Maybe I need some authority figure to tell me the answer. Right. No. <laughs> Thank you for that.
0: Excuse me, Marco, are you
1: Yes, Tracy. Open to a, a question? Yes. Good morning. Good morning.
0: I've been really excited the last four years in the practice realm, by the practice realm, the, the insights and the um, release, a lot of release from a lot of tension. With that question, um, that Paul emphasized a lot. I I, I gathered that is of what is this, and all the variations of that question.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So I can see now at this moment that with some with some uh, let's say dropping off an enthusiasm. <laughs> how kind of reliant I've been on let's call them the the body-mind experiences that are so enjoyed from that release with that question uh so I'm in this kind of space now just sharing with you this that that um well what the hell (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's like, wait a minute, I've been like really being propelled, frankly, almost, it feels like, um, by this taking refuge. Almost, like on a kind of, I don't know how to put it, but, uh, well, hmm. so I'm in a bit of a dry spell. <laughs> and I don't have the big picture. Mm-hmm. uh the like on on that it's kind of like oh
1: what do i what do I do with this?
0: <laughs> it's like,
1: like <laughs> uh, what do you do, yeah. Tracy, what do you do with it?
0: yeah, yeah, I hear you asking the question as a way of turning that around as well, okay, this is now
1: yeah, what am I doing now? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Kind of like what Sherry was saying. I I I I I don't yeah, I'm I'm there, I'm here. I'm on that cushion. And oh there's freshness again. It's like I'm relying on freshness. I get it. I'm so relying on freshness. If it's not fresh, it's like <laughs> So, I guess that's the kind of question here. The, well, fre- you're calling it freshness, and now it seems like it's a little, dull, you know, what past due? <laughs> the shop daters, I don't know. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, I guess, yeah, what is that?
1: yeah where is that and where
0: is that because it's it's a it's a body thing too
1: Mm -hmm. yeah 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 Uh, finding that freshness comes starts with uh recognizing when it's stale ah and maybe even uh you know Staying stuck in the staleness. If that's what's happening, mm-hmm. what does it mean to? Uh, yeah, what does trust look like when you're stuck?
0: That's a real good question. I could hear myself that I was asking myself
1: that. Thank you for your thank you observation and question.
0: Yeah. Thank you for your always turning the
1: question around, Marco. Thank you. Thank you, Tracy. All right. Is there maybe a last comment before we end? No. I I'd
4: like to say something. Melanie? Um, hi Marco. Hi everybody. Um wow, I think your dharma talk had like about five dharma talks in it. Uh those you could have you you have very rich dharma talks and it surprised me because um I wanted the topic to be something other than refuge. Like <laughs> I had this idea about what refuge was and it, nothing like what, well, of course there were elements of, of it in your talk, but nothing like what you talked about. So that blew my mind. Um, and I think, uh, one thing that really struck me was the Katagiri Was it category Roshi that you quoted from the book?
1: Yes. Mm-hmm.
4: And, uh, the idea that, uh, I'm, we're everybody and everything. Mm. And that's to me what's happening in the world right now. I'm sorry. I'm, I know I'm looking up, but let me move my little screen here so I can look like I'm looking at you. Um, with what's happening in the world, is uh, I think it's how. I think that's where compassion comes in because it's not it's not just happening to me. It's happening to everybody. So what's happening in the world, like with anti racism. And things like that are my world. It's my responsibility. It's, of course, I can't control the world. So, really, truly, um, it's profoundly huge <laughs> beyond my thinking, <laughs> beyond my imagining. Yeah. Um, and uh, the idea that, uh, am I going to live by my karma or not, is also blew my mind.
1: Yeah, it's pretty mind-blowing. <laughs>
4: mind-blowing. And control, the idea of control. I mean, the one saving thing I thought about was, well, I have to choose to take a vow. You know, I'm in control there because <laughs> I surely don't want to give up control. But, uh, so those are all really intriguing things. And uh, I don't know. I don't, I hate that I don't have a question sometimes.
1: What What but, I'm hearing you say Melanie actually is that when you when you release control what's left what can possibly be left when you release your ideas of how things are or should be and when you let go of control or trying to grab onto them what's left especially in this world that we are so painfully aware of what's left is compassion which is what I heard you say
4: yeah Compassion and listening. Like, I can't, yeah, listening, deeply listening. Because those things lead me places, and I think it leads others places too, like areas I would never have explored, or within the Sangha, people I never would have met. Um, yeah, and it reveals my own limits.
1: Anyway, thank you. Yes, very thank exciting. <laughs> You know, I, I've heard, now you said exciting, Tracy said exciting. You know, I wanna also just bring up the the mundanity of it too, right? It's It's exciting sometimes, and other times it's just a slog, right? We can't rely on exciting. You know, we get trapped and we fall into pits and we suffer, we flounder, right? That's part of the journey of being a human being. And and without it, um, you know, I'll say, I mentioned this in the class earlier this week, you know, my own trajectory through to practice, you know, when I said that, you know, people come to practice because of suffering, like I was so clueless when I came to practice that actually I thought I was invulnerable. I didn't thought I didn't come to practice because of my suffering. It was so, I mean, I was so deluded. I didn't even see my own suffering. So when we see our suffering, when we see our stuckness, that's kind of like, um, uh, that's when we, as Blanche would say, we just have to sit down. (laughs) Right? It's so big and so inconceivable and so, ungraspable, uncontrollable, that the appropriate response is just to have a seat and be, be with it. Not very pleasant necessarily, not very exciting sometimes, most of the time maybe. So, I think uh, I wanna end here and return to the Zen center where I can sit in the cool day with all the huddled uh, sitters in the yard and turn to this question. Um, this question about the either the excitement or the mundanity, if that's a word, mundanity, yeah. I, no matter what it is, can we turn to it? And doing in so doing, isn't that our practice of taking refuge? And over time, the practice, like any practice, we get uh, new insights into it. We discover further depths like Sherry, right? This is like, you know, it doesn't end practice doesn't you don't get to some point where it's like okay and now i'm done maybe temporarily you do but <laughs> thank you all very much uh, for uh, embarking on this uh, this practice this, this practice together this is sangha these are the uh the beings that are on this path of inquiry Whether it's exciting or boring or, you know, we're walking this path together. Again, like Katagiri said, you don't even need to like each other. (laughs) You know, it doesn't matter what you think. It doesn't matter. We're walking this path together. And in so doing, uh, we are of support to one another. Not absolute support. Not mommy and daddy, but spiritual friends. Sangha. Thank you all very much.